This is Asia Insight, Asia Policy in a Pod. Welcome to the Asia Insight podcast series by the National Bureau of Asian Research. I'm Doug Strube, Assistant Director of MBR's Center for Innovation, Trade, and Strategy. The National Bureau of Asian Research recently published a major new report titled China's Digital Ambitions, a Global Strategy to Supplant the Liberal Order, which argues that Beijing has developed a comprehensive global strategy to increase its control of and influence over the global digital environment, and that this strategy seeks to replace the liberal digital order with a China-dominated, illiberal one that will disrupt the existing global hierarchy and create the foundation for a new type of geopolitical power that will enhance China's global influence. This is the first of a three-part mini-series exploring what China's digital strategy is, how this strategy is being executed, and what countries concerned about China's growing digital influence can do to better safeguard liberal values and norms. In this episode, we're joined by the project's principal investigator, Emily de la Bruyere. Emily is a non-resident fellow at the National Bureau of Asian Research and co-founder of Horizon Advisory, a consulting firm focusing on the implications of China's competitive approach to geopolitics. She has extensive Chinese language research experience, and her work is at the cutting edge of U.S. analysis on China's military civil fusion strategy and platform geopolitics, as well as their implications for global security and the economic order. It's great to have you on, Emily. So you've been researching China's global digital strategy and trying to get to the core of what's motivating this strategy, how it's being executed, and what its core objectives are. The main argument you arrive at is based on the Chinese government's diagnosis that data has become a factor of production and that this is catalyzing a new industrial revolution. Before getting too deep into the specifics of China's digital strategy, can you talk about what this means and how it's driving China's broader strategic ambitions? Yes, of course. And I think the fundamental motive here is that China's digital ambitions are competitive and they rest on the goal of pursuing really an unprecedented competitive opportunity. As Beijing sees it, and this is a thinking that is very Marxist, or at least very informed by Marx, human history, modern human history is economic history. And it really is a series of sequential industrial revolutions, every one of them catalyzed by the emergence of a new factor of production, whether that be land or labor or capital or technology, or today the emergence of data as a factor of production. And what that does is industrial revolution transforms industry. And in transforming industry, it also transforms social interaction, governance, and really everything about modern life. We're seeing this today, and there's really no question whether in China or elsewhere that we're seeing this today in everything from the buzzwords of software eating the world to the mobile phone to which we are all attached to the digitalization of industrialization. But there's something different about how Beijing interprets what this change, what this industrial revolution means. And that's again that China sees it as a competitive opportunity. The framing from Beijing is that when you do have an industrial revolution, you as a function of that get a reshuffling of the global hierarchy. There's a chance for emerging powers, in this case China, to leapfrog the incumbents because the legacy leaders control over the strategic basket of resources 
isn't as secure anymore because the paradigm has changed. Which is all a very long-winded way of answering your question, but what it effectively is, is that China puts the digital revolution in the context of a model of industrial revolutions and interprets this as the determinative for this era opportunity to leap ahead of the existing global order. You mentioned that the overarching objective of this is to capitalize on the ongoing digital revolution and use this as an opportunity to leapfrog to leadership of the world order. Can you elaborate on that and how China's digital strategy works to achieve this goal? Yes, and here we get to go back to the very Marxist roots of China's framing at the risk of being reductive. And what you get there is an idea that the competition, international competition, so the competition among nation states is at its root a competition for resources. So the legacy leader in the international system is the player that has superiority in over the strategic basket of resources or the factors of production. And that superiority is within you know, the existing paradigm very difficult to challenge because control or power or prosperity or however you put it tends to be a self-fulfilling prophecy. But when a new factor of production emerges and industrial revolution happens, the paradigm shifts and suddenly the legacy leader's position can be challenged. There's an opportunity for the emerging power to jump ahead and actually the emerging power might have an advantage in doing that because they tend not to be burdened by the same responsibilities that can weigh down the incumbent. And they also tend to be more flexible or more dynamic in terms of their strategic frameworks, as well as ability to implement those. So that right there is what China's trying to do with this reshuffling of the global hierarchy. Beijing sees itself as now on the same starting line as even those players who dominated the last era. Beijing is intent on being, you know, perhaps the first one to recognize that there's a race underway or what the race is underway, and then to capitalize on the opportunity. And what are some of the more concrete ways that China's implementing this strategy and capitalizing on this opportunity so far? What's really interesting about China's approach to doing this is the degree to which it addresses the digital competition from really every angle. A huge part of China's digital strategy involves bottom-up resource allocations, involves recognizing that even though what we're talking about is data and it's virtual and you can't see it, the tools for taking advantage of, so for collecting and for assessing and then for applying data, do rest on physical systems. And to that end, China is going out globally and building digital infrastructures, um, whether those be telecommunications base stations or data and computing facilities or data storage and computing facilities. And China is at the same time building an integrated value chain in the relevant industries and trying to secure positions of leverage in other countries' value chains. So that's a very bottom-up approach and it's matched by a similar project to build virtual infrastructures. So to capture international markets for, for example, platform environments like e-commerce, like social media, like information technology logistics. All of that takes the form of the really traditional form of like infrastructure construction and commercial competition, but in very digital relevant domains. 
China pairs those two thrusts with a more top-down effort. And that's an effort that's focused on shaping the legal, the regulatory, and the governance system for the digital environment. That includes digital technical standards or digital relevant technical standards like 5G, but also like AI relevant standards. It also includes shaping digital governance, which is such a, you know, it's a broad, it's a, a sweeping concept. One of the things that's particularly prioritized when you read Chinese sources on this subject is cross-border data flow. The top-down and the bottom-up approaches interact in mutually reinforcing fashion, building the infrastructure, engaging in digital relevant commercial competition, changes the immediate facts on the ground. The question of technical standards and governance can lock in any advantage China is securing as well as create a longer term strategic advantage for China's players, because that's more about shaping the playing field in which the next contest will take place. So we'll dig deeper into some of these topics in the second and third episodes, but you've found that all these different elements are working together toward the creation of a new digital architecture, and this is disrupting the existing system and creating the foundation for what you call a new type of geopolitical power. Can you talk about these concepts, both the emerging digital architecture and what you mean by a new type of geopolitical power? The crux of that argument is that, and now you know, I really risk digging myself down a rabbit hole to mix metaphors, the value of data comes from the exchange of data, whether that's transmission of it, like as with just general communication, like what we're doing right now, or that's with applying massive data sets for, for example, machine learning capabilities. So based on having recognized that China's digital strategy and you know, the reason China is building this digital infrastructure is about much more than just collecting data. That is valuable. You want to have more data in the same way an empire might in the past have wanted to collect more land because the more data you have, the more you can refine your predictions based on it or develop advanced machine learning AI capabilities. But there's a much greater power potential that comes from being able to shape and to govern the flow of information. So how, where, to whom data is transmitted according to what rules and flowing through whom um, applications of data are pursued. And that's when we talk about China competing for data as a new factor of production and competing for the industrial revolution. You know, what I really mean by that is this ambition on Beijing's part to control the architectures for data's exchange, to shape the exchange of data in our new environment, which is really just me rehashing that sentence I was supposed to explain, but you know, I think we can get somewhere on this. What does that actually mean? It means that as data becomes this valuable thing that shapes the production, that shapes the circulation, and shapes the consumption of resources internationally, that depends on there being this integrated global architecture for data's collection and exchange. You need to have, for example, infrastructures that are equipped with sensors that are going to collect information. And then you need to have data systems 
um, among all of those, like submarine cables, but also like telecommunications networks that are permitting the exchange of it. And then you also have to have data computing facilities to take advantage of it. And the applications of all of those in the form of, for example, platforms that users interact with, as well as smart infrastructure that's going to you know, send autonomous cars moving wherever it is they're going to move. That's the digital architecture. And that's what China's trying to build and to shape. And if it can do that, to go back to this initial question of access versus influence over information, all of that data that's being collected by the infrastructure with the smart sensors or the e-commerce company, all of that is flowing to Beijing. At the same time, the information applications and the way in which information is disseminated to move resources or to affect ideas, all of that at some point is shaped by Beijing so that it can actually influence how people, how things, and how ideas move and are exchanged in a modern environment. That definitely stayed very much in the amorphous, and I'm not sure I explained that sentence, but it's overall the vision I think you get when you talk about a digital architecture that China's trying to build and what it could mean. So you see this as a new type of power because it gives Beijing more access to and control over the flow of data and this allows China to influence external information environments? Yes. And this is so like the new type of geopolitical power. That was the point of the question. Advantage over resources in like the different iterations of um, human history or industry have allowed states, for example, to be more efficient in terms of economic production or to have lower costs of capital in the case of the US dollar and capital as a factor of production, or you know, to deploy greater military strength. Data offers a much broader and a much more all-encompassing kind of control or advantage. Data is revolutionary as a factor of production because control over its movement gives you the ability to shape pretty much everything in the cycle of every other factor of production. And so this new type of geopolitical power is that if Beijing can build and can control this global architecture, and if it really takes root, then nothing really happens that China can't in some way see. And nothing really happens, whether it's taking place in the virtual or in the physical world, that isn't at least in some way influenced by Beijing-controlled information systems. And we end up in a world where incentives, whether those are economic incentives or social incentives, are up to Beijing to shape. I think the best, like more concrete case of what this looks like is turning to Amazon as an example of it, because that's something that is so in our lives and it's so accepted. Amazon dominates American commerce, but also much more than American commerce. It has this information platform that's able to collect information on all of us and what we search and what we shop for and what television we watch, and therefore is able to create very competitive products that allow it to one-up whatever you know, furniture manufacturer or even um, show producer. But what's really crazy about Amazon is that it shapes the information environment in which we interact with its products. So Amazon can make sure that the product it wants you to buy is the first one that comes up in your searches or has the best reviews, or that something that's targeted at your particular proclivities is going to be advertised to you. And um, Amazon can do this not only in the shopping environment, but also in the entertainment environment. So you might have not only something that you're likely to read or watch advertised to you, but also have that content 
itself advertise a product that you might then turn to Amazon's platform to buy. And you end up in an environment, and again, I think we've all accepted this, where we're shopping or perusing or streaming in an environment that is trying to shape our actions and to its advantage. And then in China's case, you have all of this being conducted except by an authoritarian state that wants global superiority and that is asserting this kind of information control not only in an e-commerce and entertainment context, but really across the entire economic and social spectrum. That's an interesting point about Amazon's use of data to advantage itself. And as you just touched upon, a major difference with China versus the US and other liberal democracies is China's use of the commercial domain to achieve its strategic objectives. Could you explain this difference and why it's so important in the context of the ongoing digital and technological revolution? The phrase that seems to recur throughout Chinese industrial policy is that this model is state-led and enterprise-driven. Which is fun as a framing because you know, it's a little different than how we normally think of state-controlled economies in that there's a little more flexibility, but effectively what Beijing does is it shapes the incentives of companies and also puts them under relatively strict regulatory control so that they're going to go out internationally or, and or domestically and pursue activities that align with China's overarching strategic ambitions. And as they collect resources, namely information, that's going to not only help them, but also feedback to Beijing. And as you said, this is really critical for today's digital competition because this contest isn't playing out in a traditional domain of interstate or government interaction. It's not taking place in traditionally military domains. It's really not even taking place in traditional political uh, or governance ones, no matter what role digital governance does play. The advantage and also the kind of power that's going to be developed is its center of gravity is in the commercial realm. So the information architectures that are being constructed are being constructed across the world primarily by companies. And the information that's being collected across the world is being collected primarily by companies. And then the applications of it that are being developed and that are being internationalized are being developed and internationalized by companies. And for the most part, internationally, those are companies that are operating in their own self-interest, trying to capture markets, trying to make a dollar. China's approach is different because it's deploying this web of state-led companies to build digital infrastructures, to deploy digital platforms, to collect information and to shape information that's being received, not just for their own bottom line, but rather according to the strategic ambitions of the Chinese Communist Party. And what does that mean? It means that we, we as consumers, whether that's individuals or that's you know government, governments trying to build telecommunications networks, are engaging with these players as if we're engaging with any other commercial actor. And that creates an opening for Beijing to really project power and project power as a nation state with very little resistance, even from nation states whose interests might be harmed by this and against which China is competing. But it also matters, and I'll be short on this because I think it's probably a whole other line of conversation. It also matters because so much of power in a digital environment is a function of scale and of integration. So it's one thing if you have one company out there collecting information or deploying platforms. If China can combine the resources and the positioning and the presence of its entire private sector or even just a significant tranche of its private sector, it 
can claim a determinative advantage in the digital contest. Great. That actually leads perfectly into another question I had about China's asymmetric advantages. In your chapter, you describe the benefit China derives from its scale, centralization, and industrial capacity, and argue that these features may be newly and uniquely determinative for the digital contest. You've touched on a couple of these, but can you elaborate on how they're unique to China and how they work in Beijing's favor? It's funny because we have this, I mean, we at least in the U.S. have this conception that centralization, at the very least, can actually be a negative in a a technological contest like what we're in right now um, because it can stymie innovation and because it can undermine flexibility. And we have a similar assumption about scale because we think of scale as largely anti-competitive. And we tend not to emphasize industrial capacity because we're very focused on like the downstream, the super high-tech, shiny applications in emerging domains as opposed to the much less high-tech, much more established industry chain that leads to those. And but scale, centralization, and industrial capacity are all really key parts of how China pursues its digital ambitions. And that's based on an assumption that, yes, we're in a technological contest. Yes, this industrial revolution is driven by and a function of technology. But technology isn't the factor of production. It's data that is. And that changes what advantages are and what can be most determinative. So why are these helpful? The more data you have, the more valuable it is. Similarly, Data tends to, you know, the, to go back to this idea of the architecture for the digital environment um, and the systems along which data is transmitted and used, those tend to be networks. Networks are defined by network effects, which boil down to the idea that the more users or the more connections a network can offer, the more valuable it is. So on two key points here, scale is determinative. You want to accumulate more data and that makes it valuable. But also, if what you're competing for is an architecture or a network or a platform, the biggest one is going to be the most valuable one because it's the one that can promise the most users and the most connections. So it doesn't really necessarily matter if a platform has the shiniest technology or the best UI if it can't offer the scale that a somewhat less shiny or somewhat lesser UI-enabled platform can. Similarly, centralization promises the ability to marshal scale because, for example, China can ensure that all of its companies are sharing their data with the Chinese government and therefore letting it collect more and can decide and govern one large, almost monolithic platform that, again, will be the biggest. Centralization is also incredibly valuable because as we're building out, the world is building out this new infrastructure for the digital environment that requires long-term, large-scale capital investments, which you really need to be a centralized player in order to pursue. And finally, industrial capacity matters because the digital architecture requires physical products, and you need to be able to make those. And secondly, China's industrial capacity lets it serve as something of a center of gravity for the rest of the more fragmented economic and commercial systems. We all know that every company wants to have a position in China, both for the market and for the productive capacities there. Having industrial capacity also lets China set standards or rules in emerging areas. So these three things, which haven't, which may not have been important or at least determinative in the last industrial revolution, when it was technology and innovation that mattered most, 
end up being hugely, hugely important in the contest to control, to shape, and to aggregate information. And because of China's structure, it has this asymmetric embedded advantage across the board. And stepping back a little then to look at the broader strategy, you found that China's digital ambitions are partially driven by defensive concerns, namely the desire to reduce dependence on external inputs or markets. But you've also talked about the offensive motivations, including the desire to gain asymmetric influence over others and controlling information environments. Can you talk about the roles of offensive versus defensive objectives in shaping China's thinking on these issues, and is one more dominant than the other? Beijing is intent on developing integrated value chains in strategic industries at home so that it doesn't have to depend on outside players for resources or for production, so that at no point can any competitor say, hey, we don't like what you're doing, we're going to stop sending rare earths your way, or no longer produce semiconductors for your technologies. There's a quote that Xi Jinping repeats over and over, which involves, and I will butcher it, but effectively that you can't build your house on someone else's foundation. So you can't build your strategic industrial and technological ecosystem on a value chain that relies on somebody else. And but at the same time, even as China's trying to do this, it's also trying to make sure that other countries build on Beijing's foundation, that China has key nodes in important international value chains, that China controls the supply and the markets for important international resources. And doing this grants Beijing coercive leverage because it can be the one to say, we're not going to ship rare earths your way, um, as in the Japan case that's already played out. And this also helps China to climb up the value chain because if it dominates production of, for example, a key node in the semiconductor supply chain, then companies that rely on that key node have to interact with China and might have to share technology. And this locks in their relationship and therefore any efforts to acquire positioning or to acquire resources like innovation. What's the balance between the defensive and the offensive? I think they're entirely fused. I think it's you know, the flip sides of the same coin, and there isn't really a separation in the approach to them. But this whole approach absolutely takes advantage of the emphasis in like our globalized system on cooperation. And it takes that cooperation and it takes that coordination and it turns it into a competitive forum. So when you look at all these things together, how successful do you think Beijing has been so far in carrying out its digital strategy? Do you think they'll be able to achieve their objectives? And if so, how much longer do you think this will take? Unfortunately, I think Beijing has been remarkably successful and I think more successful than most people realize because, again, China's optimizing for different things or pursuing different advantages than those that have, that have been determinative in the past. And I think you see the metrics of success really across the board. You see it first in that there are very few things that are digital technology relevant that can be built without value chains that China controls. And that kind of creates a trump card or shapes the playing field from the beginning. And then you get, of course, the question of this proliferating infrastructure, digital infrastructure being built by China. And we've all read the articles about these smart cities or the 5G or what have you. Um, and they're real. And that's global and any, and the lead that, or the advantage Beijing has secured in these fields is compounded by the fact that there seems to be 
little resolve, even as there is rhetoric from the international community about actually dedicating the necessary capital resources to rival that. But you also see China's success in the higher level, in digital governance and in digital standard setting and everything that's going to shape really the rules of a digital environment and therefore that will determine what the playing field looks like tomorrow. And Beijing's influence in international standard setting, for example, has increased significantly over the past decade. And Beijing is really adept, this goes back to the point about centralization being an advantage, Beijing is really adept at ensuring that all of its players in the standard setting ecosystem are responding to Beijing's overall strategy rather than their own, say, market or corporate interests. Same holds for governance. And those are domains where, again, China's success is compounded by a lack of resolve in the international community, or at least a lack of similar competitive approach. Um, the rest of the global system of the world is really pretty fragmented on these fronts and doesn't have an overall strategic vision that might allow them to push back against or effectively compete with China's approach. And therefore, we've ended up with not only major inroads coming from China, but also a trend line that is unsettling. And that suggests it's going to be very hard for the global system to marshal a competitive response in time, um, which leads to your question of time. And I mean, who knows? These projections are so hard. And also, if I say something now and I don't want it to come back to bite me in five years, but I think it means a lot that this latest 14th five-year plan is projecting out to 2035. And perhaps this is over-interpretation on my end, but I think that date probably means something. That all paints a pretty grim picture, especially given the lack of a coherent response. You've touched on some of the risks and how China's digital ambitions threaten to disrupt the existing global system by influencing data flows and potentially undermining the norms, freedoms, and stability that this system affords. So how concerned should both governments trying to preserve liberal values in the digital domain and just average people around the world who may not be paying much attention to these issues be? Very concerned. And I like that you say average people too, because this, this meaning China's digital ambitions and their implications extends so far beyond just you know, great power politics. And it also really, China's ambitions threaten to really shape our, as people, everyday existence um, and the environment in which we interact. And China's threat really, this sounds so cliche, but it covers every domain. If Beijing succeeds in accomplishing its digital ambitions, we end up in an economic system where China is able to advantage its domestic players consistently at the expense of any free or fair competition. And again, think of the Amazon case and the potential for China to just make sure that its companies get better reviews or have better access to information or understand their markets better. Then there's the military domain. What does it look like in a world where not only are strategic value chains controlled by China, but also the IT systems that shape the movement of resources are controlled by China. And Beijing can not only have a superior operating picture of those, but also if it wants to hold them at risk or distort them. Um, and that really threatens, I mean, that absolutely threatens any government's ability not only to protect itself, but also to protect its citizens' resource access. And then there's the the informational element. You know, we're talking about data here. We're talking about information. And therefore, we're talking about how people communicate and the ideas they receive. 
And when we look at you know what how China's digital ambitions could play out over the next really single digit years, you talk about the risk of proliferating Chinese information platforms that are able to shape with little pushback the international narrative, including through the dissemination of propaganda, through the dissemination of misinformation, um, through censorship, that because of the nature of a virtual environment is a lot less blunt and a lot more effective than any other forms of propaganda, misinformation, and censorship the world has ever seen. Well, on that optimistic note, we are going to wrap up this episode, but I look forward to having you back along with some of the report's other authors to take a deeper dive into some of these topics, as well as discuss some potential policy responses in the next two episodes of this series. So thank you so much for joining today. Thank you for having me. Asia Insight Podcasts can be found on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify. Thank you for listening to this episode of Asia Insight.